Saul pursues David. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David said, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds, in the hills of desert of Surf. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Surf, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. So I know it's warm. Um, I know it's getting on for quarter to 11, but I need you to switch your imaginations on for a second and try and imagine something for me. Imagine as best you can, because some of this is beyond our imaginations, but imagine as best you can that you are standing on a renewed earth, part of a, a new cosmos, the new creation that Jesus has ushered in with his return, with his second coming. You are there. Sin and sickness and sorrow are banished, and you are now there with myriad other inhabitants of the new creation. Those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are there with you in the new world. The, the focus of your joy now that you're there in the new creation is, of course, the triune God, who you now see, you now behold the triune God in the face of your Savior, Jesus. I know I've gone about this a lot in this, this place, but you do realize you will see him, don't you? You're trying to imagine now that you're there and you see him in the new creation. You're seeing him with your physical eyes for the first time. I don't know how, how good a job you're doing of imagining that. It's hard to picture, isn't it? But that is the Christian future. That is, that is reality. There is no speculation in anything I just said. If you were a Christian, that is the future for you. But I want you to go a little bit beyond that and do a little bit of what I think is safe speculation, but is nonetheless speculation. Because I also imagine this happening on a regular basis at the beginning of the new creation. You're there and someone approaches you. And you realize it's a friend of yours. It was a friend of yours. It takes you a second to recognize them maybe because they aren't the same as they were. Because the, the years and the strain have, have dropped away and they are, they are now 
glorious. You don't recognize him straight away because they're so glorious, but you realize it's, it's him, it's her, it's that friend of yours. And they say to you something like this. They say, I want you to know something. God used you to get me here. When I was at my lowest ebb, when I felt ready to give up on the faith, when the doubts or the bitterness or the fear had had almost got to me, you pointed me to God and his promises. And God, in his grace, used that, used you to get me through, to get me here. I don't, do you think that, that's going to happen? I think it is. I mean, I can't prove it directly from Scripture. But I think that's going to happen in the new world, in the new creation. And this is the very sort of God-centered gospel friendship I want us to focus on this morning as we finish off our series on friendship. I want us to focus on what it is and what we see of it here in 1 Samuel chapter 23. I want us to unpack it so that we can seek to be and to have friends like that. We, we see this sort of friendship crop up throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, we could point to uh, Ruth and Naomi and their wonderful friendship, their God-centered gospel friendship that you can read about in the book of Ruth. In the New Testament, we could point to Timothy and Paul or Paul and Epaphroditus, you know, these, these special friendships within the fellowship of the wider church. And even the Lord Jesus Christ himself, of course, wanted, didn't he, his three closest friends near him in his hour of trial. You know, when you were going through something, who is it you want with you? Who is it you want with you when you're going through trials? That, that's, that's your closest friends. It might be a husband, it might be a wife, it might be a family, it might be friends in church, it might be friends from elsewhere, but that's who your close friends are when you want somebody with you in your trials. And even Jesus wanted that. We can also look to Hebrews, the letter where, that we're going to be going to in the autumn, where we see how the writer shows the way that the friendship and fellowship of the Christian community keeps believers in the faith keeps them believing. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, do not give up meeting together. We need each other. That's what we've been seeing the last few weeks, isn't it? We need each other. We need Christian friendships. Just to clarify something I'm going to say as I go forward, to clarify a few terms. I think it helps to see the, the, the connection, but the distinction between fellowship and friendship, by the way. The, the New Testament speaks about fellowship a lot the koinonia of the church family. We see that again and again in the New Testament. And I think that's the the, the corporate friendship that we have with other Christians. But then also in the New Testament, you see these little pictures, and the Old Testament too, these little pictures, these little vignettes of individual friendships within the fellowship of the church that God particularly uses. And that's what I think we've been trying to focus on on and off these last few weeks, and I want to focus on this morning. We need both these things. We need to be in fellowship with the whole church. And Graham was talking to us last week about what that looks like, the attitude, the heart we should have to each other within the fellowship of the church. But we also need these smaller scale, one-to-one friendships that make up that fellowship of the church, which Dave was mapping out for us in week one. And we see a friendship just like this, I believe, in 1 Samuel 23. We're not... Let's be clear about this. We're not told to emulate this friendship in every respect. 
David has been anointed king. Jonathan is a prince. There are aspects of their relationship and their lives that we're not meant to emulate in every detail. But surely they're here, along with so many of the other heroes of faith in the Bible, because they're meant to be examples to us in general terms. Uh, To give you the context of what was read to us in 1 Samuel 23, David has just fled into the depths of the Judean countryside. Why? He's trying to escape King Saul. The king of Israel, Saul, is after him and wants him dead. Saul, if you know the story, was king of Israel, had been previously made king of Israel, but had also, because of his disobedience to God, his rejection of God's sovereignty in his life, Saul had been rejected as king, and as a consequence, David had been anointed by Samuel, who this book is named after, 1 Samuel. David had been anointed by Samuel as the future king. And as God's favor towards David and the people's favor towards David started to become plain, Saul became more and more lividly jealous and began to persecute and then hunt down David to destroy him. That's the context here. Incidentally, I need to be clear about this also as we look at this passage. The idea of friendship isn't the biggest idea in this passage. The biggest ideas running through these chapters aren't about David and Jonathan's friendship. The big ideas in these chapters are about God's sovereign, powerful plan and his faithful promises to David and how he is working them out. Not just for David's benefit, but ultimately for our benefit. Because, of course, Jesus the Messiah would be descended from King David. These are the big ideas, but, you know, the little ideas in passages can be really important to us too. And that's why we're focusing on this smaller idea of friendship this morning. The, the, the greatest friend in this passage is God. God is David's friend. This is another pattern we see in Scripture. You know, Noah, Abraham, Moses, friends of God, and David is a friend of God too. That's the big idea. But God, in his sovereign plan, gives these friendships to people to see them through. He gives this friendship to David. And surely that's what we're meant to see here. Jonathan and David had become fast friends. Back in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, you can read about this. And in chapter 20 as well, they became fast friends. And David now starts to reap the benefits of that. As David is now at a particularly low point, under extreme pressure, and fleeing the king's army and the king's anger, Jonathan, the prince, at great risk to himself, because Jonathan's father, Saul, had tried to kill Jonathan already once before this in anger. A great risk to himself, Jonathan sets off to find David. And although Saul and his armies and his spies can't track David down and can't find him up to this point, Jonathan somehow finds him. And he renews his covenant with David. The solemn promises they'd made to each other, they are renewed. You read that in verse 18 of this chapter. And Jonathan encourages his friend. So I just want to break this down. Break this friendship down and break down what happens here in 1 Samuel 23. How it's used by God. And we're going to see three things about friendship in this passage. This sort of God-focused gospel friendship that we are called to and that we need as Christians. Can I be clear on that? I really passionately believe that. We need the fellowship of the church and we need Christian friendships like this to get to the end of the race, to make it to glory. You might say, ah, yeah, but Matt, I believe that God is sovereign in salvation. So do I. 
I believe when someone truly trusts in Jesus, they will get to glory because God will keep it. So do I. I believe that too. But I also believe that God uses friendships like this, which is why we need to see what these friendships look like. Three things. It's instrumental, first of all. Secondly, it's intentional. Third, it's covenantal. I'll have to unpack that word when I get to it. Instrumental, intentional, and covenantal. First of all, this friendship is instrumental. In other words, it's used by God as an instrument in David's life. Or to put it another way, Jonathan was a means of grace to David. Have you heard that phrase? Um, Cropped up in a lot of church circles regularly, a means of grace. Something that God uses in your life to strengthen your faith, to grow you in your faith, and to keep you running the race with endurance. There are some big means of grace that the New Testament talks about a lot. That the teaching and preaching of the word, the study of the word of God is one of them. The fellowship of the church is another. The ordinances, the sacraments of baptism and communion, these are all means of grace in the Christian life. But I don't think there are just two or three or four. I think there are loads of them. And one of them is friendship. Some of you know this. Some of you are only here this morning, humanly speaking, because someone spoke into your life and helped you run the race with endurance. This friendship of Jonathan to David and David to Jonathan was a means of grace that God used to bless him and to keep him and to encourage him and to strengthen him. God uses means. And one of the means he used in David's life was Jonathan. We need this. David needed Jonathan at this point. The thing about David is he was such a man of valor, such a warrior, such a powerful man, the man after God's own heart, that we can miss this, his times of weakness. And on occasions, as, we probably, as you probably know, abject failure. There were times of such weakness, and this was one of those times. We're not told that he was weak, but not directly, but we're told that Jonathan strengthened him, so he must have been weak. We're not told that he was discouraged, but we're told that Jonathan encouraged him. So he must have needed encouragement and have been discouraged. In his flesh right now, he is weak. He knows God's power from his past experience. He knows God's power theologically, that God can keep him. And God has a plan and a purpose. But he feels weak. He's ready to crumble. The most valiant have times of weakness. We know that, don't we? The bravest and the strongest people have times of weakness and need Christian friends at a time like that. Incidentally, the weakest can also often be valiant and surprise us. We need to remember that too, don't we? But the strongest can have times of weakness. Why is it so important to have Christian friendships? Not just general Christian friendships where we happen to be friends with people in church, but Christian friendships like this because they are instruments in the hands of God to keep you trusting God. That's the first thing about this friendship. It's instrumental. Secondly, it's intentional. I love this, that Saul couldn't find David. It was one of the things that constantly, consistently drove Saul nuts, that he couldn't track down this troublesome David. And yet Jonathan finds him. Nothing would have stopped him. And we need tenacious, intentional friendships like this. At my... uh, lowest ebb, I would say, in my life so far, I had a few close friends like this who God used to get me through. The closest of them lived with me, um, Calf, but also certain other good friends, and I found out then that they were good friends, sought me out 
to do just this, to encourage me, to strengthen me in my faith that felt like it was barely holding on. And they were all intentional about that friendship. You you might say, well, I could see why your other friends needed to be intentional, but surely not Kath. She was living with you the whole time. No, it's not about being with people a lot. It's about when you're with them, being intentional in what you're doing. It is so possible, it is scarily possible, I think, to share all of life with someone and not be God-centered about it. It's all too easy to have Christians you love hanging out with regularly, and that's, that's good, that's great, but it's, it's all too possible to have Christians you love hanging out with and not have God and his gospel promises at the center of those friendships. We need friends who will intentionally seek to build us up in our faith and point us to our Savior. And we need to be friends like that. We need our Christian friendships within the local church and outside the local church to be intentionally instrumental. It, this isn't automatic. I wish it was. Life would be so, Christian life would be so much easier if friendships like this just happened automatically. But you've got to work at them. You've got to be intentional about them. Jonathan took risks, went in harm's way, went out of his way. Just realized this next illustration. I didn't actually check this with Sophia that this is okay, so I'm taking a risk here. But, sorry, Sophia, that's my general rule of thumb. Some years back, we were in Centre Parks up in Nottingham. She knows what's coming now. And she managed to injure herself and end up in hospital, um, end up overnight in the Max Fax unit in Nottingham Hospital. Um, and it was, it was, she recovered within 24 hours. Kath and I are still traumatized to this, to this day. Um, but it was, it was a very stressful time. <clears throat> and we wondered, I mean, we knew her life wasn't threatened, but we wondered how she was going to come out of this in terms of the injuries she'd had and whether there would be any lasting effects. We were pretty stressed. We were in this massive hospital we'd never been in before. And we just messaged a few people in church and immediately started getting messages back. And do you know what one of the messages said from one of the, the friends in Ammonford Church at the time? So we're up in Nottingham. This is a friend in Ammonford Church, and he says, we're praying for you. Great, that's lovely to know. Uh, what can I do? I'll come up now if you want. Just offered to drive up to Nottingham. I mean, he wasn't putting himself in harm's way, but he was prepared to go out of his way. That's intentional friendship. That's friendship like this. We need to be such friends as these and seek out friends like these. Friends who won't take no for an answer sometimes. Do you have a friend like that? Maybe you don't yet. Pray for one. And if you don't have a friend like that, maybe start by, seek, by seeking to be a friend like that. Who can you seek out in order to strengthen them? I can't stress enough that I don't believe this necessarily looks like the sort of friendship that Dave talked about in one of his illustrations a couple of weeks ago. You know, the, the best friends for life type friendship where you just, you have so much in common and you click and you complete each other's sentences. It might look like that sort of friendship. It really might not. But you need friendships like this and so do I. It's intentional friendship like this. So that's the the second thing about it. First, instrumental. Secondly, intentional. Lastly, thirdly, it's covenantal. Or is it covenantal? It's covenant friendship is the point. There's a reason for me using that word and not, not something slicker. It's covenantal friendship. I'm trying here with this word to sum up with a concept that's at the heart of this sort of gospel friendship, what it looks like. Covenantal friendship. David and Jonathan's friendship is defined in covenant terms. Covenant in the Bible is when two parties make promises, make vows, solemn vows to each other, with witnesses usually. 
It's not just an agreement. It's not just a contract. It's not saying, yeah, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It's a solemn, committed covenant thing. That's what a covenant is. And David and Jonathan had previously made a covenant with each other. You can read this back in chapter 18. It's referred to in chapter 20 as well. And it's renewed here in chapter 23. It was so close and it was so solemn that no other work does the job. It was based on promises made between them. But ultimately, of course, the promises they made to each other were rooted in and reflected the covenant that God had made with his people. The promises they made to each other only really stood firm because they were promises made in light of the promises that God had made to Israel and to David. The, the, the covenant-making, promise-making God and all that he had done and all that he had said he was going to do, David and Jonathan's covenant friendship was rooted in that covenant friendship. God had called and anointed David as king. And Jonathan knew that God would be faithful to that calling because of God's faithful character. Um, look at chapter 23 of 1 Samuel and verse... Uh, where are we? I've lost the verse, sorry. Someone can shout out if they find the verse. Thank you. <laughs> you knew where I was going for. I even said it. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. There's the word. And the, the other word that's used in this passage is one that you'll be familiar with if you've spent any time with us as we've studied the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Steadfast love. Kindness. Covenant love. That's what this covenant was rooted in. Steadfast, loyal, covenant love. That's a word that's used of God, this steadfast love, this chesed. But also it's used of his people because when they trust God, they reflect his character. This is something that we see, as I mentioned a few times now in the book of Ruth. Their friendship was a covenant relationship, a covenant friendship, because it was a God-centered friendship. In contrast to his father Saul, Jonathan had faith in God's promises and plans and that then worked out in his relationship with David. Their covenant commitment to each other reflected God's covenant commitment to his people. And the message for Israel in all this, as they heard this story, as they read this chapter of 1 Samuel, was this. You can trust those who've made a covenant commitment to you. Covenant means something. Because it's built on chesed, on steadfast covenant love and covenant promises. And so it is with us. Our gospel friendships, our true and close Christian friendships, our covenant friendships must be rooted in and reflect God's character and covenant promises to us as his people. That's what Christian friendship like this looks like. This is incidentally why it's important for us to be people of steadfast love, loyal loving kindness. You know, we're meant to reflect our Savior, so this isn't just a love that's warm and affectionate where times are easy. It's a love that's steadfast, that's loyal. Are you, are you reliable as a Christian? When you give your word to somebody, do you follow through? You know, we're not reflecting our God when we're not like that. We're meant to reflect his chesed and his covenant love to us. Steadfast, loyal, reliable. This is the opposite of the fickle cancel culture that we're in, where friendships can be broken because you use the wrong phrase and that's it, you're canceled. God doesn't do that and God's people don't do that even when they're sinned against. 
This covenant commitment is what's implied in what Jonathan did. You read verse 16. The core verse for me, I think, this morning in the, in the center of this passage. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. I think that's the phrase that sums up what covenant committed Christian friendship is. He helped him find strength in the Lord his God. Or as the ESV puts it slightly more literally, he strengthened David's hand in the Lord. What would that have looked like? Well, we're told a bit of what it would have looked like. Verse 17, don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father knows this. You catch that? Don't be afraid. That's part of it. My father Saul won't lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. He's saying, David, you may not believe it right now. You may not see it right now. You may not emotionally experience it right now. But I'm telling you, God has made these promises to you. And God, the covenant God, the God of Chesed, steadfast love, will fulfill those promises. He will do it. I guarantee it to you, David, because I know this God. That's what it meant that he strengthened David's hand in the Lord, his God. Don't be afraid. You will be king. There are other things we can probably surmise. I think this is a summary of the conversation. I doubt that's all Jonathan said. I imagine David being told things like this by Jonathan. David, remember what God has promised you. I think he used the word, I'm guessing he used the word remember a lot. Remember his calling and anointing. Remember God's faithful character. Remember, David, your experience in the past of God's goodness and faithfulness. Remember how he helped you with lions and bears and giants and pursuing kings. See God in your past and trust him for your future. I imagine Jonathan saying things like that to David. As one commentator puts it, he put David's hand, as it were, into God's hand. That's what it means that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord his God. Here's the thing. Jonathan wasn't trying to be David's savior. He was pointing David to his savior. Jonathan knew that David needed God, his divine friend, far more than he needed him, Jonathan. By the way, if you're, if you're, if you're feeling friendless at the moment, and can I say if also if you haven't come to Jesus Christ as your friend and savior, this is the heart of the gospel message. Christians have a divine friend. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 15, I have called you friends. Jesus died on the cross to be the friend of sinners, died for his enemies so that through faith in him they might become friends of God. Um, there's, a, there's a lovely old hymn. I don't think we've sung it here. I don't know if we could do it in a contemporary fashion. I'm always doing this to Steve. Sorry, Steve. Have a think about it. Um, it goes like this. I found a friend. Oh, such a friend. He loved me before I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart still closely twine those ties which naught can sever, for I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. Christians have this friend. He will never let them down. I found a friend, oh, such a friend, so kind and true and tender, so wise a counselor and guide, so mighty a defender. From him who loves me now so well, what power my soul shall sever, shall life or death or earth or hell? No, I am his forever. This is the Christian hope. We have this friend. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross to make sinners his friends. 
But once we're in this friendship with God, and you can be in this friendship with God by simply telling him you trust his son Jesus for your salvation this morning. And once you have him as your friend, he then gives us other friendships in the church to strengthen us and to keep us running the race with endurance. Are you a friend like this to other Christians? That you put, your, you put their hand in the Savior's hand, in God's hand. One way to ask the question is when you, you're comforting a friend and you then leave, how do they feel when you've left? Are they utterly bereft because they wanted you there and they needed you there and now you've left? Or hopefully they miss you when you've left, but they miss you, but they feel strengthened. They feel that little bit closer to God and more supported than, when, than before you came because you've put their hand in God's hand. Do we have friendships like this that are about God? The answer to that question probably tells you whether your friendship with other Christians is a covenant friendship or, frankly, a consumer friendship. Do you know what I mean by that? A, a consumer friendship, a consumer relationship, well, it's not really a friendship. It's, a, it's, it's one that's about what you can get out of it. A covenant friendship is about the other person because it reflects God's covenant love for them. It's like marriage, really, but it's not limited to marriage. Sam Albury's great on this in his book on singleness. Vaughan Roberts is great in his book on friendship on this, saying that this isn't just about marriages. This is about friendships in the church that are not for you, but they're for the other person. That's what a covenant friendship like this looks like. It's not a consumer friendship. We know that's the case for Jonathan here because of these incredible words. My father Saul, verse 17, will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Jonathan's in line, with the throne, in line for the throne, but he's saying to David, no, I believe God's promises to you. My friendship is about supporting you and God's covenant promises to you at the expense of my future kingship. Jonathan wasn't in this friendship for what it gave him. He was in it for David because of God's promises to David. I wonder if this is why some of our Christian friendships can implode under the weight of too much unbiblical expectation because they're more consumer than they are covenant. They're based more on sharing good times and shared interests and kids who are friends and having holidays together. And those are great things to do, don't get me wrong. But they're based more on that than they are on helping each other in suffering. On helping each other when, humanly speaking, there's no payoff. There's no payback. They're rooted too much in worldly happiness and not enough in otherworldly hope. It bears asking when we think about our Christian friendships, what's the reactor core of our Christian friendships? What's the main source of power and joy in our friendships? Is it enjoyment generally or is it Jesus? We need covenant gospel, God-centric friendships like this. I'm not talking about exclusive friendships or BFF for life friendships necessarily. I'm not talking necessarily about going on holidays or hanging out weekly. I'm talking about Christians who will do this in your life and you do it for them. Friendships that say to us when we're struggling, remember, as people said to me, remember, Matt, he's adopted you. He's forgiven you. He will keep you. 
Remember his promises, Matt. Remember what he's told you in his word. Remember, Matt, you are in Christ, so don't give up and keep trusting. And, at, and even when you don't feel like you can hang on and keep trusting, I'm trusting for you and praying for you. You are loved. Friendships that do that. Have you got friendships like that? Are you a friend like that? One way of testing that is, do you talk about God with your, with your Christian friends? I know it sounds like a crazy question to ask, but don't you find that can happen in our Christian friendships sometimes? We love hanging out. We don't talk about Jesus. Except maybe in the discussion and Bible study part of life group. That's not, that's a Christian who happens to be a friend. That's not Christian friendship, not like this. We're called to friendships like this. Not that friendships are only ever small talk and mutual interest talk. Are our friendships, our Christian friendships, I hate to ask the question, but I need to ask the question too. Are they really secular friendships with a Christian sprinkle on top? Or are they God-centered, gospel-rooted, covenant relationships through and through, we can all be Jonathan to a David and David to a Jonathan. Not in every respect, but in this respect, we certainly can. Jonathan could do this because he believed in God's promises. David would later do this for himself. If you read in chapter 30, when David is under pressure and under stress again, because of Jonathan's past help, we read on that occasion, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But he'd learned to do it because his friend had strengthened him in God. But at this moment, in chapter 23, he needed Jonathan to do it for him. God used Jonathan to keep David trusting. We are called to friendships like this, friendships that get us home. Uh, I've just finished reading the second book I've read. I'm a bit of a, a, bit of a fanboy for Ernest Shackleton. Um, he had three um, expeditions to the Antarctic none of which, strictly speaking, were particularly successful. He never met any of his aims for his expeditions, but he's famous for the fact that in his second expedition, the endurance that was discovered under the Antarctic ice a few weeks back, photos of it, yeah? Um, he's famous for the fact that although the, 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 the mission really was a disaster and they didn't achieve their aims, when they got stranded in the pack ice and then had to spend weeks and weeks floating on the pack ice hoping they wouldn't freeze or drown. And then they got into a lifeboat and paddled hundreds of miles to an island called Elephant Island and became stranded on Elephant Island. And then in order for his friends to get home safely to be rescued, Shackleton and a bunch of men out of the company who'd been stranded on Elephant Island traveled 800 miles through the Antarctic Ocean through storms in a leaky boat to get to South Georgia so that their friends could be rescued. He was absolutely determined to get his friends home. And he became famous, justly, I think, famous for it. The geologist Sir Raymond Priestley said this about him. For scientific discovery, give me Scott. Scott of the Antarctic? For scientific discovery, give me Scott. For speed and efficiency of travel, give me Amundsen. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Because that's the sort of man that Shackleton was. And that's the sort of man, the sort of woman that we need to be in our Christian friendships. Do you believe that you will get to glory and hear people say, the Lord used you to get me here? That people will say, you strengthened my hand in God at just the moment I needed it. Seek to be a means of grace to friends in the church like this. And you will be used as Jonathan was to David. Let's pray. Thank you 
Father, that we have found such a friend in you. Thank you that we have a friend in the Lord Jesus Christ who showed his, his covenant love for us by dying on a cross for us. And thank you that he offers himself as the friend of sinners, even this morning, to someone who hasn't yet taken him by faith as friend. And thank you, Lord, that when we become your friends through faith, that you give us friends, fellowship in the local church. Thank you to give us this wide variety of friendships, people we see a lot, people we don't see much, people we have a lot in common with, people we don't have much in common with. But you give us each other, Lord, and we long to be covenant, faithful, encouraging, intentional friends like this to others in the church. Help us to reach out and seek to be so, Lord. Make us prayerful that we would have friends like this so that we can be friends to each other who ultimately, by your grace, get one another home to glory. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen.